0: If you could keep that passage open in Ephesians, that would be really helpful. We're doing a series in Ephesians. The last three weeks we've been looking at the end of chapter 5, which is marriage, husbands and wives. And this week we get into children and parents and we get into masters and slaves So that's exciting, isn't it? I must say, over these last few weeks, I've got used to standing behind here. Those of you who know me well know me, notice that I almost never stand behind the lake and I wander around. But I've got quite used to it, so it could be a new way of doing things. Or not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us And you do speak to us. And Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit, who inspired your word, will speak into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Three of the marks of the brokenness of our world are these the way women are treated, the way children are treated. And the way those at the bottom of the economic pile are treated. Those who have little or no economic power or stake in the system. Three markers of the profound brokenness of our world. And Paul in Ephesians reminds us, and you remember that verse 110 where Paul says the time is coming when God is going to unite everything in heaven and on earth under Christ. In other words, the profound, deep, destructive disharmony in our world that's characterized in so many ways is going to be united under Christ. We're going to move into a new era that's one of peace and joy, where death is replaced by life where people who are victims of injustice will experience justice and freedom and there will be joy and peace and rejoicing because Christ has united everything together. That's what we look forward to. And Paul tells us in Ephesians this extraordinary thing that that future that is to come, has already broken into this world. It's already partially, but really, present. And the place where it's present is the church. The local church, the body of Christ, as Paul describes it in Ephesians and elsewhere. The body of Christ, the community of people meeting together like us here, and thousands upon thousands across Sydney and Australia and then across the world the future has broken in and is really present in the local church that means that people can get a tangible experience of the future in the local church that means that the church is the most privileged of 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 places it's the most extraordinary place it is the only place it is the only place where you get a real experience of the future extraordinary privilege of being in the church of Jesus Christ but the extraordinary challenge as well maybe I've not got that used to standing behind the desk maybe I'll have to move it <laughs> extraordinary challenge because the call of the church is to be the church To be what God has made us to be. To be this community of people where the Holy Spirit is present and at work and lives are being transformed. And that's Paul's great call in Ephesians. And particularly in this second half of the book from chapter 4 through to chapter 6. He's calling on the church to be the church. Make every effort, he says, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That future that's already broken in. Make it real, he's saying. Spare no effort to make it happen. Three marks of the brokenness of the world. The way women are treated. The way children are treated are treated and the way that those who have no or little economic power are treated. That means that the brokenness of the world is not just out there, is it? In those things that we read and see in our television screens about war, and about the profound injustice and suffering that there is around. The fact that it's demonstrated in things like the way women are treated, children are treated, those at the bottom of the economic pile are treated, means it all comes very close to home, doesn't it? In fact, it means it is in our homes, in our marriages, in the way that we parent our children, in the way that our children respond, and in the workplace as well. Here in Ephesians chapter 5 and then going into chapter 6, and the chapter division at chapter 6 is really unfortunate. Paul is addressing the first century household Husbands and wives. So he starts there and notice he begins with wives and then moves on to husbands. And then in chapter 6, children and parents and then slaves and masters. All of that is meant to hang together. So not in the church Bibles, please, but mentally can you erase chapter 6? There's no division. It all hangs together from wives and husbands in marriage through to parents and children and then to slaves and masters. It's all of a piece. Paul is addressing the first century household and the reason he's doing that. Is because where the household goes will be where the church goes. In other words, there is no such thing, if I can put it like this, as your private life. What you do in private, in marriages, in families, in the way that you bring up your children, if you're parents, the way that you respond to parents, the way we do our work life, all matters. Let me put it another way. Monday to Saturday impacts Sunday. Please don't put them into two separate categories. They belong together. And if the church is going to be the church, Paul is saying there needs to be a transformation in our marriages, in our relationships within our families of parents, and children and in our work life as well to put it another way paul here is talking about the extraordinary significance of ordinary life it's not just what we do on sundays it's not just what we do when we're involved in spiritual things Marriages matter for the sake of the church being the church. If we want the church to be the church, then we need to have transformed marriages. If we want the church to be the church, we need to have transformed families. And if we want the church to be the church, then how we do work, employment matters as well. Okay, let's get into this. I'll stick behind the desk. I want to start with children and parents. And I want to begin, actually, with parents. All of what Paul's saying goes back to chapter 5, where Paul has said we need to live wisely, not foolishly. And that means we need to live lives that are filled by the Spirit. What he's talking about here. Is spirit-filled living. Lives where the Holy Spirit is at work changing marriages, changing families, and changing us as we work. And so, if the spirit is at work and you're a parent, the Holy Spirit will make you a countercultural parent. What does that mean? Well, it will affect your attitude towards your children. Notice Paul addresses children right at the start in verse 1. Children, obey your parents. The fact that he addresses children right at the start, in fact, the fact that he addresses them all may not be a surprise to us, but it would have been a surprise in the first century. Children didn't really count. It's not that parents didn't love their children. They did sometimes, quite often. Children can be adorable. They were just as adorable in the first century as they are now. But the attitude towards children was different. Paul treats them as if they are individuals in their own right worthy of respect. In the first century, children weren't seen in that kind of way. In fact, they weren't always valued. It was not uncommon for babies to be abandoned at birth before they became technically, legally part of the family. And so they would be left on rubbish dumps to die, they would be left in caves to die to be devoured by wild animals. That was not uncommon in the first century. Sometimes those babies, some of them would be picked up by people who would raise them as slaves to be sold later on as slaves. It's been estimated that the Roman Empire needed about 500,000 new slaves a year And about 100,000 of those were slaves who'd been abandoned, who were raised to be sold as slaves. Sometimes children were left to die for economic reasons, sometimes it was for gender reasons. Boys were more valued than girls. Above all, what mattered in the first century was the honor of the family, the status of the household, and all that revolved around, guess who? The father. And so children were valued in the sense that they contributed as they grew up, or at least didn't work against the honor of the family. So if you were a girl, then if your father had the right, had the power to do this, uh, that is if you were a reasonably um, uh, well-off family, uh, then your father would choose, if you were a girl, who you were going to marry. And that wouldn't be to do with your preference, it would be to do with what enhanced the status of the family, which means the status of the father. His standing in the community. And so it was the will of the Father that mattered. What benefited him and the status and honor of the household? The wishes of the children were of little or no significance. But notice Paul treats them with respect. And he expects fathers to do that as well. And particularly he emphasizes fathers because of their role in the first century household. So verse 4, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Now, we don't live in a first century household. Although some of our households... Anyway. But the principles still apply. Here's one. Your children are not your property. They're not your property. And at the end of the day, it's not what's best for you that matters. It's not about living out your dreams through your children. It's about what's best for them that matters. By the way, they're not always the best judge of what's best for them just in case i need to make that clear hence children obey your parents our children are not our children back in chapter 3 and verse 14 paul says i kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name your children Your children are entrusted to you by the one who is father of all. They're not your children. They are God's children before they're ever yours. And in a sense, they are strangers who are entrusted to us for the time that we have the responsibility for them. I think I've told you this before, but... When our first child was born, there was this extraordinary shock as they presented this little girl to me. It was a shock because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I still haven't. Um, But what was a shock was that this child was a stranger. I, I was just struck by that sense yes, I know. I know there's genetic links and all that kind of thing. I understand that. But I realized this was not an extension of me. This was somebody different. And I didn't know her. Our children are strangers, in a sense, entrusted to us. And our role as parents is to respect who God has made them and to nurture them and equip them so that they're able to become all that God has made them to be. That's a transformation of attitudes in the first century. It's a transformation of attitudes quite often, I think, for those of us living in the 21st century as well. The gospel changes attitudes towards our children. It also changes our aspirations for our children. That question, what do you want most for your children? If you were a first century father, you would say, what I want most for my children is what's best for me because the status and honor of the household lies with me. It's all about respect. It's about honor and avoiding shame. And so children must serve that. And you would bring them up as best you could to make sure that they enhanced the honor of you as the father because the honor of the household resided with you. And make sure that they avoided shame. Would you notice how Paul turns this around? Verse 4 Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It isn't about the honor and status of your family. What God wants for your children is for your children to grow up to know him and love him. And he still wants that for our children. Above anything else. So parents, what are your aspirations for your children? What do you want most for them? Here are some questions I think are worth asking. If you were to ask your neighbors around you, your non-Christian unbelieving neighbors around you who know you well, what would they see? How would they assess what they think you want most for your children? Second question, how odd are you as a parent? My children think I'm very odd. (laughs) For reasons I'm not always proud of. I don't mean it like that. Parents are always odd to children, in my experience, at some point. But I mean, how different are you in terms of how you parent your children from those around you who are not followers of Jesus, Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you'll be a countercultural parent. So how odd are ye? And thirdly, what do you actually do? <laughs> Where do you employ most of your resources in terms of time and money, for example, with your parents? With your children. Handsome is as handsome does, as Sam Gamgee says in Lord of the Rings. You know, when it comes down to it, what do we actually do? I have never met a person who who claimed to be a follower of Jesus. I've never met a parent who didn't say, I want my children to know and love the Lord Jesus. I've never met one. But there is a principle which goes something like this, if I can put it crudely, you don't get what you don't invest in. We don't always get what you do invest in, but you don't get what you don't invest in. If you don't invest as a parent in your children, in bringing them up to knowing and loving the Lord Jesus as first priority, and that includes encompassing them in the body of Christ, in the community of followers of Jesus Christ. If you don't invest in that, then the chances are very high that your children will not follow the Lord Jesus. You don't get what you don't invest in. I've been around now long enough to see example after example of this of parents who would love their children to be followers of Jesus but have never seriously invested in that. And their children are now spiritually, to all intents and purposes, nowhere. Now, there's no guarantee that if you bring up your children to know and love the Lord Jesus that they're going to follow Jesus. They are strangers. They will make their own minds up. But if you don't invest in it, if you don't prioritize that, getting them, training them to know and love the Lord Jesus, then don't be surprised if they don't make it a priority either. Parents. Children. By the way, you know, as long as our parents are alive, we remain children. The relationship changes, but we remain children, so please don't nod off at this point. Children. The the Holy Spirit will change children. And boy, do some of them need changing. That was a joke. (laughs) Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Notice he's saying this is the right thing to do. This is the Lord's will for you. It's not always easy to obey your parents, is it? Some of you can remember growing up and it wasn't always easy to obey your parents. But I want you to notice the context in which he's saying this. He's speaking to Christian parents and Christian children. That is, Christian. That is children in a Christian family. And that means if you're a child with Christian parents, they value you. Or at least they should. Remember what we've already seen. And you have parents who want you to grow up to know and love the Lord. They want what God wants for you. So obey them because it's not only right, but it's good for you. And notice how he develops this. He quotes from the Old Testament. And there is this principle he takes from the Old Testament. Honor your father and mother. And then goes on to say, this is the first commandment with a promise. Verse 3, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. That principle remains. Our relationship with our parents changes as we change our own status. If you get married, you need to leave home. Some people get married and don't emotionally leave. You need to leave. The relationship with your parents changes. You are now one flesh, husband and wife, Nevertheless, we're still to honor our parents as long as they're still alive. And it isn't always easy to do that, is it? There are underperforming parents. I speak from personal experience. It's not always easy to honor your parents when they're underperforming. Parents are sinners just like everybody else and it's not always easy to honor sinners, is it? There are times when it's difficult to honor parents, not least as parents get older. They can become more demanding in all kinds of ways. But the principle remains. And notice it, it includes a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. There's the principle, God honors those who honor their parents. He's taking an Old Testament principle we're no longer in the Old Testament, we're no longer in the land of Israel, but that principle the God honors those who honor their parents remains. So let me pull this bit together. Where the household goes is where the church goes. And when the Holy Spirit is at work, he transforms marriages and he transforms families. And that's necessary if the church is to be the church. Now let's look at slaves and masters. This is a reminder to us that uh, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. What I want you to notice is how subversive and challenging this passage actually is. I imagine that you're in the first century. You're a young slave girl. Your, husband, your master and mistress recently became Christians and you too became a Christian. You know why you became a Christian? Because your master and your mistress did and you didn't have any choice. But every week, the, the household gathered and you heard things like Ephesians being read and taught. You heard other things being taught to you and read to you about Jesus. And it became personal to you. And so you responded to Christ and every week you met with your mistress and your master and the other slaves and the children. You were all gathered together and you heard something about Jesus and about his love for you. And you also heard that being a follower of Jesus means that it changes your life and it affects every area of life. You've heard that As a Christian, things should change. And you've heard chapter 5, verse 3 there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality amongst you. You're a young slave girl. Your master has been having sex with you for the last two years because you're his property. And nobody batted an eyelid about that. But you hear that. What's more, you know that your master has heard that as well because you were standing in the same group when he heard it. So you know that he knows that you know that he knows. Can you imagine how subversive that is? No sexual immorality. In other words, what Paul is saying is that there should only be a sexual relationship between husband and wife. On top of that, you hear yourself being addressed. Verse 5, slaves. Slaves were property. They didn't count. They weren't human beings in the same kind of way that free people were. But Paul is treating you as a slave as an individual, on a par with everybody else. That is extraordinary in the first century. Now, we don't live in a slave economy, although, although, another sermon. But there are some principles to apply, so let's apply a couple of principles. Number one, You know, there are some things in life that you can't change. And that has to do with work sometimes. We have an awful lot of freedom in our culture and often people are free to change their jobs. But sometimes you may find yourself stuck in a job you can't get out of. Sometimes you find yourself in a job where you can't really shift the culture of the job that you're in. Where there are opportunities to change, we should take them. And certainly, if you, are being, if you are being exploited or intimidated, there are all kinds of legal avenues that you can and should follow. We don't live in the first century. But sometimes we can't change things. And the question is, how should we as Christians, deal with situations in the workplace where we can't change things. That was the condition for the slaves in an extreme way. Slaves had no way of changing anything. Here's some things to bear in mind. Number one, God values you. It's unprecedented, as I say, that slaves are addressed at all because they were regarded as property and you don't write to property. But what Paul is doing here reflects the extraordinary change that Christ has brought and brings. Christ values you not on the basis of how much money you've got or what kind of job you do. You are valued because you're in Jesus. So remember, God values you. Secondly, focus on Jesus as far as you possibly can in your job. Do what you do as if you were doing it for Jesus. Look at verse 5. Slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. As far as you can, focus on Christ. Try to treat your employer in a way that's consistent with how you would treat Jesus. Remember, God values you. Focus on Jesus. Thirdly, be real, be authentic, be sincere. Verse 6, Obey your masters not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Be real, be authentic in living out your Christian life. Four, remember that your real employer is not your employer. What I mean by that is your real employer is Jesus. Notice, You're a slave of Christ. Verse 6, slave of Christ. You're working for Jesus. He's your real boss. And it's his assessment of you in the end that matters. So verse 7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you, for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Your employer may not value you as much as he should or she should. Your employer may not reward you as you deserve. But remember, Jesus is your true employer and he will reward you. Masters. Let's finish with masters. Masters. Imagine your situation. As far as you're concerned, your slaves are your property. They're there to serve you and you can do pretty much what you like with them, which is what you've been doing. You've been having sex with that slave girl. You've beaten your slaves. You've subjected them them to verbal and physical abuse. They've been regular events in the household because that's common. That's how you treat your property. But you became a Christian A couple of years ago, and you've been hearing things like this. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed. You've heard that, but you also know your slaves have heard that as well. And your wife has been addressed, not just you. Your children have been addressed and your slaves have been addressed. And then finally, you are addressed. Verse 9, masters treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. And then, verse 9, you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. What is Paul saying? He's saying those slaves, they're not your slaves. They're mine. They belong to me. And by the way, you belong to me as well. I'm your master. Have you got that? Their master is your master, and you are a slave to me. The slaves are slaves to Christ. The master is a slave to Christ. Can you imagine how subversive that is? And for us, some of you may have power and influence over others at work. Remember, you have a master. You are slaves of Christ. That's the language he's using here. Make sure that your behavior at work and your attitudes, especially to those who are under you and who have little or no power, make sure that it reflects the fact that you are a slave of Christ. What Paul has been talking about here is the extraordinary importance of an ordinary life. Why does it matter? Because how the ordinary life goes will impact on the church. He's talking to Christian household here, a Christian married couple, to a household that has Christian slaves and children who are being brought up in a Christian home. The ordinary life matters because how that goes is how the church will go. And if the church is to be the church, then we need marriages that are impacted by the gospel. We need family life that's impacted by the gospel. And we need our work life to be impacted by the gospel as well. What happens Monday to Saturday impacts Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us and we ask that you will help us. Help us to live out that great calling to be the church of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name.